Scripture reading for this morning is found in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 17. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for, the, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Well, for the past several weeks uh, at Westgate, we've been talking about a subject that we've called the gospel at work. Uh, our normal practice, if you're, if you're new to Westgate, our normal practice is to work through books of the Bible on Sunday morning. This year, what we've done is kind of step back a little bit and take a, a look at what several different books of the Bible have to say about the question of how the gospel, the good news of Jesus and God's saving grace, how that gospel applies to every avenue of life. And so we have, if you look at kind of the banner there or on the front of your worship folder and you follow the Ferris wheel around starting around one o'clock there, we've talked about the gospel in me. So what difference does it make in my personal life, in the gospel in the church? How does it shape us as a congregation, the gospel at home and at school? And right now, We've been talking about the gospel at work. What difference does the good news of Jesus make for my nine-to-five job and, and the life, uh, what I spend most of my to time doing apart from sleep? And then, you know, after that, we, we've got two more after this, the gospel in the public square and the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we'll keep going. But, but we've been talking about the gospel at work, uh, the good news of Jesus. When we use that word gospel, we're talking about the message, the good news of what God has done to establish his kingdom and to deal with our sin through the life, death, and resurrection of his eternal son. And we believe that, that believing that gospel is how we begin a relationship with God, but it's also by believing the gospel that we grow in our relationship with God and put it into practice in every avenue of life. And so what does that do have to do with our work? Well, this morning, uh, we're going to talk about what usually comes to our minds when the subject of faith in the workplace comes up. You, you ask somebody, how does your faith apply at work? What most people are going to think about is the question of evangelism, sharing my faith, talking with others about Jesus, witnessing in the workplace. Now, 
we did not start our focus on the gospel of work with evangelism for a reason. Uh, We started a few weeks ago by kind of taking a big picture biblical theology of work as a whole, looking at how uh, God himself is a worker who gets his hands dirty in creation and how work is something that God assigned to us before the fall. Sometimes we kind of think that work is this curse and that it entered into the story after everything fell apart in the garden. Work was part of God's creational design. It's a good thing. It is a calling by God to participate in the flourishing of his creation through the redemptive work of Christ. And and so we wanted to get that bigger picture. And, and we've talked about other aspects of it as well. How do we measure our success in work? It's not according to the abundance of our possessions, but by our faithfulness to Christ, our love for God and love for neighbor. Uh, we've talked about what to do when, when our work falls apart, when it's fleeting and fruitless and produces nothing. Uh, we looked at Ecclesiastes. It was a really peppy morning, kind of just taking an honest assessment of how messed up our jobs can become. Uh, and we've talked about how the gospel shapes our relationships at work between employers and employees. Uh, it was last week. And, and again, there's a reason that we've talked about all of these other aspects of our faith at work before coming to the subject of evangelism. And that's because if you think that the only way your faith integrates with your job is finding ways to tell people about Jesus and hopefully not getting yourself fired in the process, then it won't take long to conclude that your faith really doesn't have much to do with your work after all. Uh, if I basically we we get into the mindset that I'm wasting 98% of my time doing what I was hired to do, waiting for that little window to be able to bring Jesus up with someone and redeem my existence for being there. That's what we begin to think. And, And you can only do that for so long before concluding either that I just have to leave God completely out of my work or that if I was really serious about God, I would do Uh, some sort of ministry-type work or something like that. I don't want us to make that mistake when we think about our jobs. Uh, I don't want us to devalue something that God says is good and that is a way of honoring and serving Him. Uh, According to the Bible, whatever you do, whether you're waiting tables or washing uh, windows or writing code, or wrestling kids, you are serving the Lord Christ. And there is great honor and even worship in doing that. So I wanted us to get that baseline there, that that integrating our faith with our work is more than just evangelism. But it is not less than evangelism either. We are sent out by Jesus to make disciples of all nations in all places, and that includes our workplaces. And so I want to talk about that this morning. What does it look like to witness in the workplace? What does it look like to bear witness to who Jesus is and what he's done where we live and work and uh, and do our jobs? And so our guide this morning is 1 Peter 3, 8 through 17. And, uh, you know, as with last week in Ephesians, First Peter is one of the books we've come to often in this series. 
because it is concerned with a lot of the questions we've been asking. How does the gospel apply to different aspects of life? And so we've found ourselves often in this book. Uh, It's one of the most helpful letters in the New Testament for thinking about how to interact with the unbelieving world around us. Uh, It reminds us several times that we are strangers and exiles in this world. Uh, That the fallen and, and broken and rebellious world that that we live in, a world that we ourselves fully inhabited apart from Christ, that, that this is the world around us, and it doesn't exactly have a category for people whose true allegiance is to Christ. It doesn't always register or make sense. Our citizenship as, you know, if, if Christ is your king, our citizenship is in heaven. But we live and work here as strangers and exiles and and so our language and our culture as the church doesn't always make sense to those around us our our beliefs and our practices seem strange even offensive which can create all sorts of exciting scenarios in our lives as we interact uh, with those around us and you know you can think of the the sometimes stupid or cruel things that americans might do or say to immigrants living here uh That's the metaphor Paul is using to describe the church. We're the immigrants. We're the resident aliens in a foreign land whose true allegiance is to Christ in heaven. And that doesn't always compute for the people around us. Um, We'll actually return to this book and that metaphor in a couple weeks when we begin looking at the gospel in the public square. But it's helpful for us right now as we think about the workplace, because when you show up at your work tomorrow morning, this is the world you live in, a place where our faith often seems strange to those around us, which means that talking about Jesus or bringing up the things of faith uh, is at very best awkward and, and sometimes downright terrifying. What does this look like? It can be uncomfortable and scary. I mean, there are all sorts of stereotypes that, that people might assign to us if they find out that we're a Christian. Uh, you know, the, the holier than thou or happy clappy or hypocritical or whatever. I mean, if you watch the television shows and, and you know, some of these, especially recently, or, you know, uh, I can't remember the names of them. Obviously, I don't hang on them. But you've got these shows, these reality TV shows, glorying in the excessiveness of different Christian lives, or even following supposedly intact Christian families that you, then you find out at the end of the day are all messed up. And, and there's this stereotype that then comes. And if I bring Jesus up at work, I risk being labeled as one of those bigots or something, and we don't want that label and so on. And so we're, we're kind of afraid of evangelism. Uh, for some of us, the hesitation has more to do with the idea of evangelism itself. Uh, The evangelistic programs or illustrations that our parents or grandparents grew up sharing honestly feel a little simplistic or or shallow or just disconnected from real life. Uh, We're leery of the kind of hit-and-run evangelism that hijacks a conversation like a multi-level marketing pitch and, and just kind of ends up treating somebody like a project instead of like a person. So we're uncomfortable with that idea. 
And you, you take all of that and, and you put it together with the fact that it's no longer fashionable to believe everything that the Bible teaches, uh, that identifying with Jesus runs the risk of being censured at work or worse, uh, not because of anything we've done with our job, but just simply because of our allegiance to Jesus. Well, this is awkward. This is tricky. This is uncomfortable, even scary and terrifying at times when you think that my livelihood may even be on the line with something like this. And so what do we do? Well, hopefully 1 Peter 3 will help us sort some of that out. Uh, there are four points that we can discern in this passage uh, that apply to life in general. Uh, this passage is not talking exclusively about our workplaces. It's talking about life in general, but it does apply very well to our workplaces. And, and there are four points. I'm going to give them to you, and then we'll kind of work through each one of them. The first is always seek to do good. Don't be surprised when others do you wrong. Fear Jesus Christ and not those around you. And always be prepared to share the gospel. We'll go over each of those again if you missed them. So the first one, always seek to do good. As part of Peter's larger argument on, on what it looks like to live out the Christian faith in a world that's sometimes hostile toward it, uh, he begins in verse 8 by reminding the church of the importance of basic Christian character, the kind of character that the Holy Spirit produces in us as we follow Jesus, the kind of character that Jesus models for us in his own life and ministry. And so verse 8, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. There's this baseline of Christian character. And then out of that, Peter begins to apply it to how we respond to hostility and opposition in verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, if you've ever been reviled, or maybe you're not sure what that word means, but you've been spoken poorly of, often in public, you've been cursed or slandered, if that's ever happened to you, uh, or if you've ever simply just been wronged by someone, and all of us have been wronged by someone in some way, then you know that our default reaction when that happens is not to turn around and say, God bless you, you know. That's just not what's happening in my heart when somebody's saying wrong things or, or speaking of me in a lowly or embarrassing or hostile way. That's not how we react. We, we want to curse them. We want to get even. We want to return evil for evil, uh, to be vindicated. We want to invoke God's holy judgment upon them for their offense to us. That's the default attitude of our hearts. But Peter calls us to something very different here, something, frankly, that Jesus calls us to. Peter's just echoing Jesus' own words in the Gospels here. He says, on the contrary to what we would normally want to do, bless. Do good. Seek their welfare. Speak well of them. Why would we do that? 
It all has to do with how the gospel of Jesus is affecting our lives. This is how God has treated us. And this applies not just when people are wronging us. This is the baseline of our Christian action. Doing good, blessing others, should be the normal pattern of our lives. It's the kind of life that God honors. Uh, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. And Peter anchors this idea that that this this is not just the altruistic reaction. This is the baseline of Christian living. He anchors that in verses 10 through 12 by quoting Psalm 34, which we heard from Lawrence earlier. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so when it comes to witnessing in the workplace, to, to talking about Christ, before we worry about what to say, we must always seek to do good. That's the baseline. Be a blessing to your company, to your employees, your colleagues. What does that look like? Well, look again at verses 10 through 12. Keep your tongue from evil. That's a good way to be a blessing at work, to keep your tongue from evil. Not, don't speak badly about somebody behind their back. Uh, people will notice that. You know, if, they, if your colleagues are carrying on about someone else negatively and you don't jump into that slam session but actually say something positive about that person, people will notice that. That's weird at work. And so keep your tongue from evil. Keep your lips from deceit. Tell the truth at work. Don't lie. Don't embellish your reports or pad your numbers. Don't blame others for your mistakes. Keep your word. If you said you were going to be there at that meeting, be there. Do what, do what you say you'll do. Turn away from evil and do good. Be the best employee in your company. Work hard for your business. Be a blessing to your colleagues. Put others ahead of yourself. You know, if someone calls in sick, offer to bring a meal by on your way home. Bring some donuts into the break room every couple of days. Just be a blessing. Seek peace and pursue it. Be a peacemaker at work. So often that the the work culture lends itself to kind of gripe sessions and conflict, and we fuel that conflict. Don't be that guy. Be a peacemaker. Be someone who helps resolve conflict, someone that people know they can trust so that when the wheels fall off, you're the one they're coming to. Be a peacemaker. Always seek to do good. That's the baseline. Even when people revile you or slander you. This is the first aspect of witnessing in the workplace. Now, if you think about it, if that's what you're doing, you're always seeking to kind of be a blessing to others, why would anybody ever curse you in the first place? You know, uh, why would somebody do that? 
That's a good question, and that brings us to the second point. Don't be surprised when others do you wrong. Number one is always seek to do good. Number two is don't be surprised when others do you wrong. Now, again, if, if you're seeking to do good, very often the world's going to appreciate that. In verse 13, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? If your goal is, is to be the best employee you can be, most bosses are going to honor that even if they don't understand it or why you're doing it. Uh, and it brings credibility to your witness. It kind of explodes some of the stereotypes that are so easily hung on Christians. Uh, before coming to Westgate, while we were uh, waiting on the Lord to show us what church that he was calling us to, I spent about eight months working in a warehouse in the shipping department. And uh, when I first met Brian, who was our UPS guy, he wanted virtually nothing to do with Christianity or Jesus. He had been uh, he was kind of a nominal Catholic and never really understood or cared about it. And he'd been really burned by some evangelicals. And he was just kind of stay back. And, you know, over seven months of interacting with him, me and several of my colleagues who were believers, and just, you know, every morning when he made the delivery and every afternoon when he came and picked up what we were shipping, we actually became friends and, and got to know each other and hung out after work sometimes and, and uh, talked about just life in general and worked hard together. And sometimes, when it came up, talked about the things of faith. God developed a friendship there. And a few weeks before we moved out here, Brian invited me over to his place with his friends there. And we had the chance to talk about the gospel. And so just, you know, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? you're doing good most people are going to honor that even if they don't get it and yet it's not uncommon even if you are doing good however winsome you might be for people to oppose you simply because of your allegiance to christ verse 14 but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed that means Sometimes you're going to suffer for righteousness sake, for doing what is right. And you know, that can really take us off guard. If you're just trying to be a good person and, and a, a good employee and somebody begins kind of attacking you, not because you've messed up at work, but because of what you believe, that can, be, that can kind of take us off guard. But, but Peter tells us in, in chapter 4, verses 12 to 16, it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So if you're going to suffer at work, uh, don't let it be for being a bad employee, for being chronically late or, or doing things you're not supposed to do. For, uh, don't let it be for stealing from the company 
or because you're a meddler and always getting into other people's business when you shouldn't be. Don't don't suffer for those reasons at work. If you're going to suffer, let your union with Jesus be the only offense in your work. And it will be offensive at some point. Um, The claims of Christ are offensive to an unbelieving world. Not just the the hot-button topics um, that get the press today, uh, but the fundamental truths that undergird those issues. The the fact that Jesus lays claim to all authority in heaven and on earth. That's a controversial belief. That's not going to go over well with everybody. Jesus has the right to rule you. That's offensive. Uh, The fact that He deserves and demands the worship of every creature under heaven. That we will be held accountable to his word, whether we believe him or not. That there's only one way to know and have relationship with God. That is through faith in Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. Those are offensive. And if you believe that, people will take offense with you. You cannot be nice enough or nuanced enough or winsome enough to avoid this all the time. Sometimes it's, you know, petty. It's like a taunting or a, or a teasing. And when Carissa was in high school, uh, she worked at a grocery store, and a customer dropped a bottle of liquor on the floor, and she had to go clean it up. And her co-worker instead of helping her clean it up kind of sat there and laughed because the nice christian girl now had to go home smelling like alcohol and won't that be so funny you know that's childish and petty but it's frustrating and yet sometimes the opposition we face has bigger consequences uh for those of you who've heard my personal story of faith you you might remember that one of the uh ways that the Lord drew me to himself was through the preaching of a guy named Ron Brown, uh, a football coach, a longtime football coach for the Nebraska Cornhuskers, who's now at Liberty University. In 2002, Brown was turned down for the head football coach position at Stanford in large part because of his Christian faith. He would have been a liability to the university if they'd hired him. That's what they were told. Uh, In 2012, members of the local board of education and an ESPN commentator called for his firing. Not because he was a bad football coach, but because he believed what the Bible taught about marriage and sex. And that made him a poor role model and a bad representative of the university. Brown's response, classic Brown, To be fired for my faith would have been a greater honor than to be fired if we didn't win enough games. You know, there can be times where we face this kind of opposition, not because we're bad employees, but because of who we follow, what we believe. That shouldn't take us entirely off guard. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus said in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, Know that it hated me first. Or as Peter reminds us in in 1 Peter 2.21, For to this you have been called, 
because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. You were called to suffer after the pattern of Christ. But Peter also reminds us that when that happens, when you suffer, not for being a bad employee, but when you suffer for righteousness' sake, for doing what is right in God's eyes, for serving Jesus, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And that's because there's something bigger at play here than what your colleagues think of you or or how your boss may threaten you. And that brings us to the third point. Number three, fear Jesus Christ and not those around you. Fear Jesus Christ and not those around you. Verse 14 again. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy. Recognizing that Jesus is Lord, that he is our holy and sovereign king, and that there's nothing that our colleagues or bosses can do that's greater than his power or outside his plan, that makes all the difference in our work and our witness. It's tempting to fear what the world can do. But if we do that, we're fearing the wrong thing. Fearing the wrong thing. Peter's words here are actually an echo of Isaiah 8, God's word to the prophet Isaiah, who found himself in a position where the word he was speaking was not well received by the people he was speaking it to. And the people around him were not interested in following God. And so God says to him in Isaiah 12, uh, excuse me, Isaiah 8, Verses 12 to 13, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Fear the right king. Very similar to what Jesus says in Luke 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. In other words, don't forget who's really in charge of the situation. Don't forget who the king is that we really will all answer to in the end. Don't forget whose world this is, and don't forget what he's done to purchase and redeem you. Paul says in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? As bad as this might get, there's nothing they can do to touch Christ's throne or your security in him. And so honor Christ as holy. He is over and above and bigger than any situation. And when we do that, that gives us a courage to be faithful to him, even if it costs us everything. And that brings us to the last point, number four. Always be prepared to share the gospel. Always be prepared 
to share the gospel. Verse 15 again. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The charges won't stick. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So much. If you had to boil it down to two things, so much of witnessing in the workplace is continuing to do good and being ready to talk about Jesus when the opportunity comes. That's it. There's so much can be boiled down to that, watching for God to open that door of conversation. If you're not doing good, then your words will mean nothing when that opportunity comes. If you're living inconsistently or ungodly, your words won't mean anything. If but if you never say anything when you have the chance, well, then they're never going to hear the gospel either. So you need both. Sometimes you think that, you know, I'm just going to show Jesus by how I live. I'm not going to say anything that's awkward or offensive. I'm just going to show Jesus by how I live. Or sometimes we think of the, uh, the phrase that's famously but probably wrongly attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, Preach the gospel always, if necessary, use words. But as we said before, the problem with that is that the gospel is news. It's a message. It's a report of who God is and what he's done. Imagine a news broadcast that doesn't use words in any way. Hard to get the message across. It's a report of of who God is and what he's done. And you may be the best employee in the business, But nobody's going to look at your life and say, you know what? Jim is never late for work. He always files his reports on time. His clients love him. He's made us some good money. You know what? I'll bet Jesus Christ is king, that he died for my sins and rose again. And if I believe in him, I can have forgiveness and new life. Nobody's going to draw that conclusion without words and so we need to be prepared to share the gospel which means we need to be prepared to use words as god gives opportunity to give the reason for the hope that we have they can say they can tell you have hope but what's the reason for that hope what makes us tick why why are we different you know it's not because we're perfect it's not because we don't mess up it's not because we you know don't always do Always do what we're supposed to. There's some hope, though, that even in a mess like this, that how is it that I have hope? What makes that tick? Why do we do the good things we do if we're doing them? And why do we respond to hostility the way we do, assuming we respond to it by blessing and not cursing? We need to be ready with the good news of Christ. And honestly, very very simply, it starts by just letting people know you're a Christian. Do people at your job know that you're a Christian? That's the first question. Sometimes you have that you know, awkward moment where you've been working with someone for like three or four years and all of a sudden you find out you're both Christians. Don't do that. Let people know. You, know, you don't have to be loud and obnoxious about it. You know, 
maybe read your Bible on break sometime, or somebody asks you, hey, what'd you do this weekend? Mention church in there. It's pretty easy. But if they don't know you're a Christian, they're not going to ask you about Christ. That much is true. And so, you know, let them know. And, And when they ask, be prepared to give the reason, which can be intimidating if you think, you know, too much about it. Now, it, now, that doesn't mean that you have to be an expert in the Bible, that, you know, you need to know everything there is to know about the Bible. Now, obviously, if we love Jesus, we're going to be growing in our knowledge of his word. That's one of the ways we commune with him. But it doesn't mean you have to be an expert in the Bible. It doesn't mean that you have to anticipate every possible question or criticism that someone might bring up. Or be an expert in, in what, what's called apologetics, which is the kind of the uh, line of philosophy that focuses on defending the Christian faith. That's great, helpful stuff. That's not exactly what he's talking about here. We need to be ready to point people to Jesus. That's the reason for the hope that we have. Jesus. To bear witness to who he is and how he's changed our life. The one who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, and now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Jesus is real. Jesus changes lives. We need to learn to see those gospel opportunities and point people to Christ. Uh, Sometimes people will, will sit us down and ask us quite directly about our faith. We wish it happened like that more often, but it does happen. Uh, I've told the story before of, of when Carissa was working at a fast food restaurant and her boss sat her down on break. She was in crisis and she said, I need to know more about this Jesus that you believe in. Will you tell me? Those are like, score, you know, golden opportunities, wonderful. Doesn't always happen that easily. Uh, sometimes the door is more subtle. And, and so it's not about like, okay, can I... Feel, I'll feel better about myself when I go home for work if I, like, you know, force that into a conversation at some point. That's not what we're talking about. Be a friend. Actually love people. Love your colleagues. You know, and, and take the opportunities God gives you to point them to Jesus. Somebody's having a trial or a difficulty. You know, how about offering to pray for them? That's pretty non-threatening. Uh, maybe even praying with them right there would be a very powerful way to tangibly love someone. Someone bears their heart to you. Listen. Be a good listener to them. Listen to their story, empathize, and share your story. How does their story connect with you? How are the things they're struggling with? How have you struggled with some similar things? And what difference has Jesus made for you? 
Now, everybody has a life story. Every single person, whether they know Jesus or not, everyone has a life story. And we can share our stories with one another in a very relational and non-threatening way. Just don't forget who the main character of your story is. It's Jesus and how he's changed you and how he's still changing you. Because none of us have it all together. None of us have this figured out. But we have someone who does have it together and who actually has the power to do something about it and change us. Look for opportunities to share. And if you really want to learn how to bring Jesus into a conversation at work, shadow Rob Stanley for a day. Seriously. You will get multiple opportunities to see how it's done. There's a man who has been changed by the gospel and cannot help but talk about it. So look for opportunities and share your story. And as that door opens more, invite them to read the Bible with you. God's word is powerful. You might simply say to your friend, you know, uh, hey, what if on Tuesdays we took kind of the first 10 or 15 minutes of lunch and just read a couple paragraphs in the Gospel of Mark and just kind of see what it says? Uh, It's amazing how many people will take you up on that offer. And you might even find that the interest is more than than a single person. You might be able to kind of start uh, what we called in my campus ministry days an an investigative Bible discussion at work. You know, though not a Bible study per se. It's not the kind of uh, study where somebody's teaching or preaching or or preparing a lesson. It's not the kind of study where Christians get together and show off how much they know about the Bible. It is simply getting together with people— And just looking at what it says, just start there. Not even what I think about what it says. What's it saying? That's the first question. And you'll get to those other questions eventually. But it's a non-threatening, relational way to just simply say, what is this really about? Let's look. Let's discover it together. Let's discuss it. There's something powerful that happens when we read the Bible regularly with friends over time, building relationships. And if that's something you're interested in, talk to me. I'd love to help you get something started like that. Always be prepared to share the gospel. But one more thing before we conclude. This is a critical point. Uh, Peter continues in verse 16. Yet do this with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Translation, don't be a jerk for Jesus. Okay? Don't try to bully people into the faith. You might win the argument, but lose the person. And that's not the goal. That's not the goal. Go back. Remember the Christian character that Peter started with back in verse 8. Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Is that shaping your conversations. Is that shaping your heart? Be a good listener. Don't steamroll over the conversation. Be humble. If somebody asks you a question that you don't know the answer to, it's okay to say, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to it. Maybe we can look that up together. Be humble. Don't feel like you have to have all the answers. You don't. And they'll see through that, frankly. It's not a show. 
Sharing Christ with gentleness and respect means quite simply actually loving your neighbor. That's what it means. That I care about them as a person. That I'm not so interested in making sure they think I'm right, but I'm interested in loving them and caring for them, even if at the end of the day they don't follow Christ. Now, I want that for them. That's what's best for them. But my friendship isn't contingent on that. Sharing Christ with gentleness and respect means that that's how we do it, with loving our neighbors. And so how do we bear witness to Christ at work? Always seek to do good. Don't be surprised when others do you wrong. Fear Jesus, not what others can do or think. And always be prepared to share the gospel. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess that we don't often take you at your word. Lord, it is easy for many of us to come and gather here with other people that we know think similar to us and act similar to us, it's uncomfortable to think about sharing that with others. But Lord, may our hearts be so filled with love for the world, love for the lost, that we would put aside that self-protective insecurity. Lord, may we be so moved by genuine compassion at the thought of people, friends, family, spending a Christless eternity. May that grip our hearts, and may we long, Lord, not just to win an argument, but to love people by pointing them to Jesus, to find the love we have found in Christ. May that be part of our basic Christian living. Not an exception, but a norm. Lord, we need your Spirit to do that in us. And we thank you that your spirit is powerful and present. In Jesus' name, amen.